At the outset, nothing in this podcast should be interpreted as legal advice. Further, the views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the university. Please email campbelllawreporter at email.campbell.edu for any media inquiries and third-party distributions. Welcome to the Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. This legal podcast strives to expand Campbell University's mission to lead with purpose by reporting with purpose. We hope to breathe new life into the dusty reporters on the shelves by reporting the content through captivating discussions. Our mission is to provide current and interesting reporting on legal topics affecting today's professionals. Listeners can expect to hear from various hosts throughout the year. Welcome to this episode of the Campbell Law Reporter. My name is Brian Purnell, your host for today. I am joined by Professor Elizabeth Beringer of Campbell University School of Law. Our episode discusses legal research and writing, the LLM program here at Campbell, and Professor Beringer's new book. Professor Beringer, please take some time to introduce yourself and let our listeners know how you became involved in the legal profession. Sure. My name is Elizabeth Beringer. I graduated law school in 2002 from Mercer University School of Law, and I began my career as a public defender. It was a very satisfying career. After about two and a half or three years, I transitioned into the private sector, doing immigration, small business, and appellate work. What I loved most about practicing law was drafting motions and arguing motions. I loved the intellectual side of the trial. And even when I was arguing to a jury, I approached it like I was teaching them about the law and really engaging them in the intellectual process of legal problem solving. And so it was a very natural transition. In about 2008, I was asked to teach at the University of Phoenix and began teaching some criminal law classes there, fell in love with it, and had an opportunity to join the faculty at Barry Law School as a legal writing professor. And initially, the idea was that I would join as an adjunct professor and do it part-time. But due to circumstances beyond everyone's control and my wildest dreams, I was brought on full-time at the last minute. And I've never looked back. I love the classroom. I enjoy the opportunity to focus on research and scholarship. I like doing presentations. I like speaking to practicing attorneys about best practices. I like watching students grow and learn in the legal writing classroom. And so my specialty, my area of focus in academia has been legal writing. And most recently, I joined the faculty of Campbell Law School in 2016, and I developed the upper level writing program, which has seen tremendous growth. And we've recently expanded that program to include an opportunity for our students to enroll in an LLM program at Nottingham Law School in the UK. Wow, you've been busy. Very. <laughs> so speaking of the LLM program, can you tell us you know, more of what, what that program entails and what a degree like that, a program like that can do for someone with a JD or someone 
who's already gotten their JD. Sure, sure. So the advantage that Campbell Law students have with the Nottingham LLM program is that they have advanced standing to enroll. Typically, you would have to have a terminal degree, meaning the JD, before enrolling in an LLM program. But because of our relationship at Nottingham, our students are permitted to enroll after they've completed their first year of study in the JD and then complete simultaneously the rest of their JD coursework along with their LLM coursework. So by the time they graduate from law school, they will actually have two degrees, not just the JD. That's obviously an advantage on their resume. Yeah, I mean, employers like to see um, it demonstrates hard work. It's obviously an additional credential. The LLM is a dissertation-based LLM. So students choose a topic and write a scholarly article with the goal of publication of that article. And so they will likely have a published article by the time they're applying for jobs. They will have developed an expertise and they will also have demonstrated an ability to focus on a task that takes incredible concentration, focus, commitment, and they show a depth of analysis that their employers are interested in seeing. Wow. It sounds like a great program and it sounds like Campbell students can really benefit from what you guys are offering in the writing department. Yes, it has been a wonderful partnership. And the feedback we've gotten from Nottingham is that they have never had students as prepared as Campbell students. The program is open to students from all over the world who have terminal degrees. So Campbell is standing out amongst students from around the globe as the leaders in this program. It's also available to practitioners, judges, anyone who does have a terminal degree can go and complete the Nottingham program through our partnership with Nottingham. So we've sent so far eight judges through the program. One ended up writing an entire treatise as part of his dissertation. It just it just kept growing. And we've had three others recently submit their final dissertations. Students who enroll have up to two years to complete the course of study. And so we're very excited to see these final products and to be able to soon announce where these articles have been published. All of our students have received distinguished marks, but one of our students received the highest marks available for the dissertation. And he has been awarded the opportunity to pursue a PhD through Nottingham Law School, all expenses paid because of the quality of his work that he put in on the LLM. And so that's been a tremendous honor for him. He was also presented with a cash award for that. And it's remarkable that he was able to produce a a piece of work that that was that high quality, that was that well-respected, and he's still shopping it around to see where it's going to be published. I mean, that's that's so impressive to be able to do that before you even graduate law school, to be so far and to get to continue his degree and those publishing options. Yes, yes. Uh, To me, I don't know about the rest of the world, but it seems unheard of. You know, it seems like really paving the way forward. For doing more with your law degree than just practicing, you know, using that research aspect and continuing in the academic world. Yes, it's a question that I get asked a lot. You know, what's the point of of writing these scholarly articles? Why are you investing so much time in it? Why would you encourage students to do this? Does it really help with the practice of law? And I believe wholeheartedly that it does help with the practice of law. There are a number of transferable skills, like I mentioned before, the ability to focus on a task, the ability to think critically, to think outside the box, but also it contributes to 
to the law culturally and socially. You know, we are questioning existing frameworks that may have led to persistent injustice over time and questioning are there ways that we can address this. Law review articles are cited by judges all the time. Academics and students who are spending the time to study these questions and publish their thoughts are influencing the judiciary. They're influencing the bench. Sometimes when individuals are lobbying Congress for a change in the law, they're going to cite to law reviews. And so there's a way to influence your practice on a much more macro level by engaging in scholarship, as well as a micro level of becoming a more thoughtful advocate on behalf of your clients. That's really great. And definitely, you know, I feel like I've learned that being enrolled in the program. I've definitely seen my writing grow and my analytical skills in terms of writing and reading have really improved thanks to the work that we've done. It's been really great. And continuing with that part of the program, I know you take two courses. Mm -hmm. One of the courses is taught by yourself. Yes. And you've recently published a textbook for that course. That's right. That's right. It's called the Legal Scholars Guidebook. The course was developed initially because we were concerned that we would be sending our law students to complete this dissertation program with no real guidance in advance. And, you know, they're focused on their JD studies and doing this LLM course of study on top of it. And so we wanted to provide the support that students would need in order to be successful. And I think we've we have accomplished that goal because our students are the most prepared students that go through that program. And so this foundations course is critical to that. And what we do is we spend the first half of the semester meeting for an extended period of time, usually four hours a week. And I guide the students through the process of topic selection, preemption checking, making sure that their idea is novel or unique. I take them through how to manage the research process. We do research summaries. The students begin to understand what an analytical framework is and how to adopt or deploy an analytical framework in their own analysis. And we end the semester at the midway point with the students producing an annotated outline. So they've got all of their thoughts organized. The basic structure of their paper is set out. And then they travel to England to present their topic, their thesis, to Nottingham, to their mentors, to the other students in the group. And we spend a few days over there allowing them to be inducted into the program. They receive an orientation, present their topics. And then after that period of time, they return to the U.S. and complete their dissertation at a distance working with their mentors through email and Skype and and those sort of media. The book came about because there was no textbook that I could use for the class. And so I found myself creating a lot of materials to help students understand what this process of scholarly writing was, how to manage it, how to think about it, how to establish benchmarks for accomplishing certain goals so that the project doesn't stagnate. And about a year ago, I realized that I had enough materials to actually write my own textbook. If there wasn't a book out there, maybe there was a market for this book. And what I also have found in the process of writing it is that it's applicable in a lot of other settings. So the Legal Scholars Guidebook would be helpful to a student who's on law review and working on on an article. The process of writing a law review comment or note for a student is exactly the same kind of process that a student in the LLM program is going through and drafting the dissertation. If you're enrolled in a seminar and you're getting a lot of instruction 
on the subject matter of the seminar, but not as much instruction on how do you actually whittle down your topic into a manageable thesis? How do you manage the research part of it? How do you start to organize your ideas around points that you want to make and not just around the resources? How do you make it more than just a regurgitation of research that's out there and really incorporate your own thoughts, your informed thoughts about what all of this research means? And so it's helpful in that context. It would have been so helpful to me when I was a new law professor and told, oh, well, you know, you have the scholarship obligation. You're supposed to be publishing. I had no idea how to get started. And I had mentors and everyone kept telling me, oh, well, it's just like writing a brief. And writing scholarship is not at all like writing a brief. Um, It's much more nuanced. You're using a completely different type of resources, typically. And the way that you're approaching the material is very different than when you're writing a brief. When you're writing a brief, you're arguing about how the existing law demands a certain outcome, whereas with scholarship, you're much more questioning the status quo of the law. So it's helpful to new professors. And I I think in a variety of disciplines, the processes that are outlined in this guidebook can be really helpful. Definitely. It sounds like it. It sounds like something I could benefit from having. So you've done both. You've done scholarly writing and you've also done drafting and pleadings and things like that. Do you have a preference? Oh, wow. (laughs) Great question. I would say it depends. I think... From a macro level, I prefer the scholarly writing. I like having the opportunity to challenge my mind to think about difficult concepts at a depth that not everyone has the opportunity to take advantage of. I like pushing my mind to go there. But it takes a lot of space and time. Um, It takes you away from your family. It has to happen in large chunks of time. And by large chunks, I mean days or weeks where you're isolated and not allowing yourself to be interrupted by anything else. It requires a level of obsession that I find thrilling, but it's not sustainable on a continuous basis. But the impact, the potential impact of what it is that you're saying is much more exciting, I think. On the other hand, what I love about drafting is that you're able to move through that process much more rapidly. Usually it's on behalf of a client who's checking in with you, someone who's very present. It's a very micro issue. And when you achieve a good result based on the arguments that you've advanced on behalf of this client, that is so satisfying to see the court do the right thing or to see the court adopt your rationale or to even produce an order that essentially lifts the arguments word for word that you made in your motion or in your memorandum of law or your brief in support. That is exhilarating in and of itself. So it is a tough choice to make. As a professor, I don't get a lot of time to draft anymore. You know, my, my central focus can't be that. I'm, I'm teaching other students to draft. So the scholarship has taken that primary role for me now. That was a great point. I know we talked about in one of my classes recently how, you know, half the analogies that you read in court opinions are taken directly from the winning side's brief. Yes. And so using the best practices for drafting and writing and scholarly writing, you know, can benefit you in so many different ways. I also wanted to ask, 
just generally for our listeners, whether they're students, legal professionals, professors, or just anyone listening, do you have any general writing tips that you could tell us today? Just the first thing off of your head. Yes, (laughs) I do. So the first thing that popped into my head, and I have a couple of potential responses for you. So I'll share all, I'm happy to share all of them. But the first thing that popped into my head was develop your process. I was actually listening to oral arguments this morning. My students are at that stage in the semester where they're performing. And one of the students made a really great argument. I mean, he he made a great point about a case. And afterward, when we were debriefing, he said, you know, I had not even noticed that sentence. It was just one sentence in a case, but it was so meaningful. And he says, I picked up on it this morning when I was just going back for a last minute review of the couple of cases I knew would come up in my oral argument. And I saw that sentence and it jumped out at me and I, and it clicked what the significance was. And so having a multifaceted process that allows you to have these aha moments that are not going to necessarily come the first time you read through a case. You're not going to see all of the connections of the arguments that you're ultimately going to make the very first time you delve into the materials. And you have to be willing to give yourself the time and the space to wrestle with the the law, to think about the law, to begin writing, to go back and revisit some of the things that you've talked about. That process is the most important part of writing. Anyone who thinks they can just sit down and write from the beginning to the end and they're done is probably not going to have the highest quality final product. My other piece of advice is to be guided by the structure of whatever it is that you're writing about. So within the law, let's say you're drafting a motion or you're drafting a contract or a brief, you're dealing with legal principles that have certain structure. Maybe you're dealing with an elements test, or maybe you've got factors, or maybe you've got to balance competing interests. Allow your document to follow the architecture of whatever rule that it is that you are trying to argue. The way that the law applies is going to be wholly dependent on how the law is structured. And with that being said, also be open to considering multiple structures for the same rule. And some rules can be written about in lots of different ways. Last year, I created a whole problem around a rule of law where some courts treated it as a balancing test, which made it seem like both sides had very were on very equal footing initially. And other courts talked about the rule as if it were a rule with a narrow exception. And the rule was very clearly on one party side and the narrow exception was on the other party side. And in that case, that's structure made it seem like the parties were not on equal footing, not even close to being on equal footing. And so being able to identify the different rule structures that courts have identified, or even maybe that you identify on your own as you synthesize the cases together, being guided by that is going to give you a lot of power as an advocate. At the end of the day, the way that the rule is structured is going to influence how it gets applied to a given set of facts. That's some great advice, advice that I will definitely use and I hope all of our viewers appreciate. So speaking of your advice, 
Let's go back to talking about the textbook that you recently published. Um, what were some of the challenges that you faced when, when writing something like that that, is, that had never been written before, trying to go off on your own and create something like that? So I had a little bit of trouble following my own advice. I will, <laughs> I will uh, admit readily that it's hard to follow your process sometimes. I was writing it during the semester, also during the summer, some of my times off, but letting life get in the way was a real challenge for me. So I can completely relate to my students when they say, you know, life happened and I didn't get to give this as much attention as possible. As I was pushing through the last couple of chapters to submit that first draft, my wonderful husband was able to build in some time where I I got to be isolated for what I needed. I got a few days to myself and I really just focused and pushed through. I think as a writer, building in that time for yourself and demanding of yourself, being disciplined enough to demand that you follow a process is incredibly important. I also found, this was after I got some of my reviews back, that I had made a lot of assumptions in the text about a baseline of knowledge because I had been working with the materials for so long. And I see this a lot in practice, attorneys who who draft routinely. I see it in students. You become so familiar with the rule of law, with the set of facts, and you start to make assumptions about the level of knowledge that your audience has. And it's so easy to skip over some of those foundational materials and try to to jump ahead to the deep meaty information and so having that book reviewed during the um, the publication process was very helpful so that process I had to produce my initial draft and then 10 law professors reviewed it overwhelmingly the feedback was positive there were professors who who said that they were adopting some of the strategies for their own scholarly writing which was a huge compliment to me but the the constructive feedback was was definitely that I I could give more detail in a lot of the chapters and so it went from I probably tripled the size on my edits wow. and revisions wow. <laughs> based on that feedback so I think it's a really comprehensive book now. I expanded the examples. Each chapter ends with an assignment. And so students, if you take the book from chapter one through the end of chapter six, you will, from chapter to chapter, be doing an assignment that builds on the prior assignment and that leads you down the path to accomplishing your ultimate goal of producing a scholarly piece of writing that's worth publishing. And if you follow those chapters on your own timeline, but if you go in order, you will absolutely complete whatever writing project it is that that you have in front of you. And the assignments are designed to guide you through that. So there are samples of those in the back of the book that you can use as models. And as you become more familiar with your own process, you'll obviously have your own models of how you want to complete each phase of the assignment. So the book takes you through an annotated outline in the abstract, and then it gives you guidance for how you progress beyond that. Most people who are engaged in the scholarly writing process have a mentor or 
guide of some sort who is going to be working with them on the actual drafts, giving feedback on those actual drafts. But there's not a whole lot of time to do the instruction on that process of getting to that first draft. And so the annotated outline helps students reconfigure their thinking from being around the resources, which is what they've been doing so far, and reconceptualizing and reorganizing around the points that they want to make. And so there might be a source that fits with two or three different points. And so it's going to appear multiple places throughout the paper. And the paper is not organized around those sources themselves. The students also at the very end, and this is one of my favorite assignments, is they go back and they rewrite their topic selection essay. They turn it into an abstract. And by this point, they've done so much research that they, in rewriting that topic selection essay, they see how far they've come. Researching a lot of times feels like you're floating in a sea of abstraction. You can't really identify whether you've learned anything or not. You start to question if you even know your own name sometimes. It's a difficult task. And so going back and reading that initial topic selection essay and realizing how much more you know now than you did then is really helpful to students. It helps. It gives them a sense of accomplishment. It makes them feel like they're doing something meaningful they can be proud of like they've actually achieved a milestone um it's measurable right and then that abstract also becomes sort of their elevator speed so now instead of talking for 20 minutes about what their idea is they've got a concise brief statement of exactly what their thesis is about. And they're able to talk intelligently about their topic. They can express it in words that non-scholars can understand. They can express the significance of it, the import to our culture, to our community, to the law, all of the reasons why they're writing this article. They have now been working with the materials long enough to establish a vocabulary for talking about it in a meaningful way. And so that rewriting of the topic selection essay, I think, is what I most like reading in the class. The book has 11 appendices, so it has a lot of examples for students to work through, and the introduction has a lot of encouragement as well. Another feature is this section in every chapter called Squelch the Imposter, because we all have this imposter that speaks to us sometimes, and we might start to feel defeated or incapable or like we just don't want to do it anymore. We can't do it anymore. And so I try to anticipate what that voice is saying at different stages of the process. I've been through it enough. My imposter talks to me all the time, unfortunately. And so I offer strategies for trying to quiet that voice, strategies that I myself have used. I've also done a little bit of research with some of my colleagues to see how they quiet their imposter. And I try to offer some some of their advice as well. Another good feature that my reviewers suggested actually at the very end is I've added in a section called You Can Do It. It was initially called Final Thoughts and there was a lot of encouragement in those paragraphs and that title my reviewers thought didn't really convey how important that section was and so I changed it to uh, You Can Do It. And Sometimes you just need a cheerleader. Sometimes you need that voice to say, okay, just put one more foot in front of the other and you're going to be across that line before you know it. Don't look to the end. Just look to where you have to put your foot for the very next step. That's all you need to focus on. So I've written the book in the first person. 
it's different for a textbook. Um, usually textbooks are pretty abstract and in the third person. And this particular book, I want it to be a guide that you keep by your side. It's got a spiral binding on it. So it's going to lay open flat for you. You don't have to worry about it accidentally closing or having to prop it open with anything else. It's easy to navigate and you'll feel like you've got your your best friend who is encouraging you all along the way. I think that's so wonderful because I know, you know, especially for law students, you feel the imposter almost all the time. Yeah. It's it's a constant thing. And I've never had the opportunity to read a textbook from the first person, but I, I do like, you know, it sounds like a, a unique but fun and helpful way to go about learning this process and improving everything. I think so. Think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that that's the the ultimate result. You know, the academy sometimes can be kind of tough on that. So we'll see how how it plays out, but I think when it comes to scholarly writing, our goal has to be building a more informed body of research, a body of writing that, you know, asks tough questions and if we can't be encouraging of each other in that process, then, you know, what's the point? So Amen to that. And so, I mean, the book sounds like such a resource, right? It sounds like everyone should have the little buddy on their bookshelf. I think so. If our listeners are interested in getting their hands on a copy of it, how should they go about doing that? So Walters Kluwer is publishing it. It's going to be on shelves in February 2020. So maybe we can do a follow-up when it's actually out. We can provide a, a website. But you should be able to order it on Amazon, through Barnes & Noble, directly through the Walters Kluwer website. It's going to be readily available. And you can Google it uh, if you want. It's called the Legal Scholars Guidebook. And I am currently working on my author page. And there will be a link to purchase it on there as well. Wonderful. That sounds great. And now to end our interview, like we do with all of our Campbell Law Reporter interviews, I'd like to ask you a question. And sure. here at the Campbell Law Reporter, you know our mission is to report with purpose. Just like here at Campbell Law, our focus is on leading with purpose. So in your own words, what does it mean to you to lead with purpose? A few years ago, I was leading a Bible study at my church. And it was called Dare to Dream. And it was I thought it was a great Bible study. And it, it focused a lot on who you are and who you want to be. And it culminated in you writing a mission statement for your life. And I think that anytime we get busy with the day-to-day, it's very easy to forget about what our purpose is. It's easy to think about did I remember to change the laundry out? And oh my goodness, did I re- respond to that email? Or if I'm going to get a promotion, I've got to go and talk to so-and-so and this other person has to like me. And, you know, I need to be really worried about these external validation factors. And I spent a lot of time this summer meditating, kind of recentering on my purpose and I think for me, I've, I've got a, a new resolve, not a new purpose, but a, a better understanding of my purpose. And leading with purpose means to me doing what you know is right, being kind to others, even when others might not be kind to you or 
when being kind to a certain person or group of people is not popular. And even when it may mean that you are seen in a, in a negative light because you've associated with a certain group or a certain idea, but standing up for what you know is right, regardless of the consequences in a kind and loving way. And I think that's really hard to do sometimes. I hope that I instill in my students the courage to lead with that kind of purpose because it's not an easy thing to do every day. And I hope that I accomplish leading with purpose like that. I think that was really, really well said and very similar to how I see it. Thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Beringer. And I guess that's all, folks. Thank you for listening to the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. We look forward to you joining us every other Wednesday at 7 a.m. for a new episode, which can be accessed through your preferred podcasting listening platform.